Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill. I'm the host of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. We're here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. And we are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. Before we get into what this podcast is going to be about, I think we need to talk a little bit about, tell our audience, if they don't already know, what is the Ancient Language Institute and why are we doing this podcast? What are we trying to do? That's a great question. So the Ancient Language Institute is a online language school, and we are primarily focused on three ancient languages for now, Latin, Greek, and in the fall, we'll be adding Hebrew. And one of the reasons why we exist is because we think that there are better ways of teaching and learning these ancient languages than what is often seen on offer. So oftentimes people will say things like, these languages are dead, and so we need to use a totally different method to teach them. We can't teach them like a live language because, you know, they're dead, right? And so what we need to do is scarf down tons of grammar charts and vocabulary lists. And the result of this primarily is that people end up hating their language learning experience and not getting very far at all. So we think this is no good. We think that there's a different way. And one of the things that we want to do at the Ancient Language Institute is take second language acquisition research into account and do the best that we can to offer courses that are effective and enjoyable. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the impetus behind the Ancient Language Institute. And so why do these other people out there, why is the status quo so bad? What do they do in the classroom that you've been pushing back against and trying to change with your teaching? Yeah, so typically this is what will happen in terms of like what students are doing as part of their homework and then what they're doing in the classroom. So they will be given an assignment where they need to memorize a grammar chart and then they need to memorize a bunch of vocabulary. Then they get to do a reading. And what they're doing is they're spending the bulk of their time memorizing grammar forms and memorizing the translation of Latin terms, for instance. And then when they go to read a text what they do is they're reading a text that's far too difficult for them. So what they're not doing, in some ways a greater problem, they're not spending enough time interacting with the target language in a way that they can understand. They're spending most of their time thinking in English. They're spending most of their time looking at formal elements of the language. They're not really interacting with the language itself. And so that is one of the main places where we want to push back. If it's a Latin language course and you're spending 95% of your mental space in English, then something has gone terribly wrong. That is perhaps one of the biggest faults in a lot of language instruction. It's just that students are not interacting with the target language as much as they need to in order to really gain a level of mastery and proficiency. So say I'm convinced, yeah, I agree, learning a language, even an ancient language, is best learned with this kind of living approach. That's more or less how I learned French in middle school. I had a great teacher. You can do that for Attic Greek, or you can do that for 
Latin. But then the next question is, why even do that? Why learn an ancient language? These are dead languages. Yeah, and you will definitely see a lot of bad arguments for why, why learn Latin, right? Perhaps my favorite bad argument is you will get better SAT scores. <laughs> like, oh, really? <laughs> really? Is this why you should learn Latin so that you can get better SAT scores? And I think that that argument is probably going to fall out of use entirely pretty soon because now nobody cares about the SAT. It's amazing that anybody ever learned Latin before the SAT was invented. Why, what reason did they have? <laughs> <laughs> one less recent. <laughs> Definitely one less recent. So better SAT scores. That's bad. That's no good. Who cares about the SAT? Who should care about the SAT? Nobody. Another bad reason is that unless, well, it's bad in, in one respect. It will help you learn the Romance languages. Now, if you really want to be like a polyglot, yeah, definitely learn Latin. But if all you're interested is in learning, say, Italian, why learn Latin first? You know, just spend all that time learning Italian. And even if you want to be a polyglot of modern languages, still, I think your argument holds. Like, I'm very well prepared to go learn Italian because I studied French. Like, is there something I can only get inherent to Latin that I can't get in any other Romance language vis-a-vis -vis another Romance language? Like, I could just, you know, go study French and then that'll help me with Italian. Like, the, the skills are transferable. Yeah, so not, not, a super good, not a super good reason. Another reason that's, that comes up is Latin will basically give your brain a really good workout. You're going to keep your brain nice and healthy. And that's true, but that's also very, very much not unique to Latin. I mean, you can do this with another language, right? You can do this with Greek or Hebrew or Arabic or Mandarin. Or Sudoku puzzles. Uh, or Sudoku puzzles. So yeah, you can really get serious about math. <laughs> you, know, you can get serious about logic. You can get very serious about the history of philosophy. There's all sorts of things that you can do that are good things that will give you a mental workout. Another one, another you know, reason that comes up is like English grammar, right? You will get really good at English. It's like, really? You want to learn a whole new language so that your English is good? I mean, why, why don't we just develop really good English courses that discuss, you know, the, the relevant etymologies from the different languages? I mean, I think there's something to be said for... For this one, this one I think is better than any of the other ones so far, because that was my experience with this French class in middle school. Suddenly, entire worlds of grammar opened up to me because I had never learned them for English because English is my native language. You don't need this huge grammatical scaffolding for your native language because you just pick it up as a baby. And the exercise of learning a different language, especially one that has a close connection to English, like one of the Romance languages or German or something like that, it kind of forces you into an encounter with grammar that, I don't know, it might be, it might be more effective. I'm not sure about this. Maybe it's just because I got bad grammatical instruction in English or something, but it forces you into an encounter with grammar because it's a foreign language. Yeah, and it's cer certainly not going to be as, um, because English is so familiar, when you study grammar, it can seem kind of obscure in a way, and 
potentially pointless. It's like, why am I learning about the subject? I can re- I can read this sentence, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Right. And learning a new language and learning you know the grammar of a new language can definitely kind of help you see English with you know kind of like three D glasses, and that's that's a valuable experience. But it's also definitely not unique to Latin. Right. You can get this experience with a Romance language, um, with Greek, any other language that you know offers you, you know, different vocabulary. It's just a different look at the world, and that just opens up, like you were saying, a grammatical way of of reading and looking at uh, at texts. And, and further, you also sure in the French class or the Latin class or what have you. This grammatical world will open up to you. I think that's valuable. But on the other hand, going back to your bad reasons. In Latin class, you're going to spend a lot of time doing things that are not going to help you with English. Like, you will do some things that will help you with English. But by and large, it won't. That ultimately is one of the main reasons is a bad goal for Latin class because you're just going to waste a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, really, you don't want to be spending all of your time talking about, like, the different cases, the different conjugations. You want to talk about, you know, how Julius Caesar got assassinated. That's <laughs> right. that's what you want to do. Right. <laughs> you want to talk about the conspiracy of Catiline. You know, you want to read Sallust's, you know, deliciously moralizing account of that. That's that's what you want to do. You want to read about the conspiracies. You want to read about the assassinations. You want to encounter these great stories. You don't really want to be staring at grammar charts. So this kind of takes us to good reasons to study Latin. If these yeah, are, you've kind of convinced our audience not to learn Latin. So. <laughs> yeah, because I like, don't don't learn Latin. That's not really that's not that shouldn't be the takeaway. Just because there are bad reasons, that doesn't mean that there aren't any good reasons. And I think that it's good to to be honest about. Like, what is a good argument for Latin and what are bad arguments for Latin? Because a worry here is that people will be sold on these bad arguments and then realize that they're, you know, that they've been had. It's like, well, these are not good arguments. These are not good reasons. And then just chuck the whole project away. What we want are solid foundations for this project of learning Latin. And the main reason to learn Latin is because you want dead people to talk to you. <laughs> you want dead people to be talking to you. You can't really talk to them, but they can talk to you. And you want to have access to this whole world of philosophy, theology, literature, history. I mean, there's so much that learning Latin can give you access to. So the main reason to learn Latin is because you want to read things in Latin. There are texts, there are authors, there are bodies of literature that you should be interested in reading. Yeah. Yeah. One of, and getting to the backstory eventually of the podcast, one of the big turning points for me with all this stuff was an essay you wrote uh, last fall that's on the Ancient Language Institute site called Classical Schools Are Not Really Classical. And one thing you really brought out in that piece, which a lot of people read, a lot of people commented on, it was kind of the most popular thing we've ever posted, and a lot of thoughtful responses to it. But one thing it brought up for me is the grammar translation method, which you're talking about with all this kind of staring at verb charts so that you never get to Caesar's 
assassination or whatever. Those people have a bad method. And then when you ask them why to learn the language, they are the ones producing these bad reasons. And it's like these two things go together. And you really, you really brought that out uh, in that piece. And so I think there's, yeah, there's this Latin problem that the classical education has. And the connection to classical education is that most of classical education, that's where grammar translation is really powerful um, and is still in charge. And so you, you get, there's some dissident teachers who are trying to do more of a direct method or natural approach or living language, uh, lots of different jargon to talk about, different ways to approach the teaching of the language. But that's where this stuff really lives, both the bad reasons and the bad methods. It lives, dwells, and finds its, its being. <laughs> um, for now, for yeah. now, I, yeah. I do hope... And I do think that there's some signs that the tide might be turning, but it's a slow it's a slow process. But yeah, you're right that it's in the classical schools where they're convinced that they need to you know that they need to teach Latin. Yeah, and so I have a I have a quote from that essay. Just you've kind of rehearsed some of this already, but just to give people a flavor both of that essay and of kind of what we're dealing with here, I just want to read this. This is you commenting on a Why Learn Latin article that Cheryl Lowe at Memoria Press wrote. You write, Lowe attempts to answer this question in an article on the 10 best reasons to learn Latin. Tellingly, the list fails to mention the fact that learning Latin is the best, read the only, way to read Latin texts. Lowe's first five reasons have to do with phonics, grammar, and etymologies. Because of its influence on English, Latin can help students become more competent users of their mother tongue. Lowe then veers into open country. Number six, quote, Latin is the best preparation for learning any language. And number seven, Latin effectively develops and trains the mind. Since its simultaneous complexity and regularity make it, quote, an unexcelled system. A, and here's your favorite phrase, mental workout that builds intellectual muscle and perfectly orders the contents of your cranium. By reason number eight, Lowe is straining to reach the finish line. Latin aids the mind in other ways. Latin is a unit study where the work is done for you, where everything integrates naturally, where the connections are there for you to discover, Lowe writes cryptically. So th this is kind of a flavor of what we're dealing with. And in this essay, you connect the genesis of the classical education movement with its, I don't want to say failures is too strong and too pessimistic. I don't, neither of us think that classical education is a failure, but some of its shortcomings or challenges or ways that it desperately needs to reform itself. Um, you connect that, particularly with the language stuff, to the origins of the movement, namely Dorothy Sayers and the Lost Tools of Learning and what she says about the trivium. So explain the trivium. How did Sayers mess it up? How does that get us into this current predicament of the mental workout and SAT scores? Right. So the trivium is the study of three different disciplines. One might even say sciences. Uh, and let's say so, let's stick with sciences, and we'll talk about that. What what that what it means to call something a science? So we have grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Now the these are scientiae. Right, bodies of knowledge that are to be mastered. So there is content. So when you're studying grammar, 
you are learning about you know the grammar of a language. Uh, when you're studying logic, you learn about you know the different rules of logic. You learn about the way a syllogism works. You learn about fallacies and much more. Actually, if you look at how the medievals discuss these disciplines, it's actually incredibly expansive. And then you have rhetoric, which is the art of speaking well. So the big issue with how Dorothy Sayers um, discusses this is that she is primarily interested in these as tools or methods for learning as opposed to sciences. This is the big difference between her and the medievals. And so there's two issues with it. One is she wants to, she admonishes her readers to go back to history and to pay attention to how other generations have thought about education. So this is actually a good thing and people should should follow that advice. (laughs) And then she kind of reads this kind of like method, like this is about preparing you in a method. What she then does this part she does not claim is found in the medievals. She and this is her most influential um, thought in in all of in her essay. She then says, "Oh, look at children; they go through these three stages, right? When they're little kids, they can memorize everything, and then when they become punks, they always want to argue, right?" <laughs> And so let's let's kind of map on the trivium onto my speculations about child psychology, and she she pretty much you know says like these are, these are my speculations about about um, psychology. This essay was incredibly influential in the founding of the classical Christian school movement, and that is to the extent that for a lot of people to be classical is to teach the trivium like this is this we've every the, the whole enterprise of classical education has been reduced to the trivium and the trivium has been reduced to stages of learning in terms of like how people talk about it uh in terms of what you will see on the on for instance on websites or when you look at at different figures in the classical christian education movement Talk about like what is classical education? That's kind of like the driving force of of the movement in some ways. So this is interesting. I want to circle back to grammar when we talk about how Sayers connects to language learning because it seems like oh one of the important whether it's a stage in the kind of Sayers dispensation mm-hmm. or whether it's a discipline in the medieval dispensation. Uh, it seems like, oh, the grammar translation people, these are the real, these are the real classical people. But before we get there, you bring out in an essay this paradox where this kind of child development schema that classical education has been built on actually undermines the self-professed mission of the classical education movement. So you say, there's a terrible irony in all of this. Classical Christian education advocates want to guard the treasures of Western civilization against an iconoclastic liberalism, but instead they wind up constructing a totally novel interpretation of the classical tradition and an instrumentalist view of language learning, revealing themselves to be just as progressive as their opponents. By prioritizing process over content, 
using superficial Latin study to develop other skill sets. They follow the standard progressive model of education, which treats critical thinking as the end-all, be-all of schooling. So classical education is supposed to be this redoubt against progressivism, and instead they've just kind of like welcomed the enemy in the camp through the back door, and it's there. So how does that all connect to learning Latin? Why do they use the grammar translation method? Why are they unable to justify, even to themselves, why they should even bother learning Latin? Um, How does that all connect? Yeah, I am actually more and more puzzled in terms of the connections here. Because if you look at at some of the apologies for Latin, there's several of them that will almost say like, but we can't really learn it. We can't really get to a point where we're reading it. And so that's that's in some ways kind of made me question is like why wait why did they decide to set students on a journey that cannot be a you know an unaccomplishable quest on something that just cannot be done why why are they doing that yeah and there is this sense that you know if you learn Latin you've kind of you know downloaded the Western heritage into your soul. Uh-huh. And it's like you, you've you've achieved it, you know. Like you're now connected to the Western tradition because you learned Latin. So there's there is this idea that it's supposed to somehow connect you to a broader history, but the way that it's done doesn't really help you actually accomplish that. So there is there is some some sense of that, but primarily it's become you know a way to get good at grammar. Is this Dorothy Sayers' fault? I mean, it's, it's in some ways, it's not her fault that she was, you know, so she was taken so seriously decades after she, she wrote this, <laughs> this address. And she, the interesting thing about Dorothy Sayers is that, you know, she inspired the classical Christian education movement. And she herself is not interested in the education program of classical civilizations of you know of the of what you see in Greece and Rome she's primarily interested in medieval education so maybe maybe it should be you know the medieval uh, Christian education movement um, <laughs> that would be I, I don't think that would have ever uh, really taken <laughs> off in the same way that's not very good branding it doesn't have the say it doesn't have the same ring to it. I think people would just assume that medieval Christian schools here in America, yeah, they just, you know, beat the children or something. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe if, if they'd also adopted robes, like medieval robes and gone for the like Harry Potter vibe. It could have worked. Yeah. That's maybe, true. maybe that was, maybe that's the way it could have, could have uh, succeeded. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter, medieval education. One interesting thing that I wanted to mention, going back to what you'd brought up about the grammar, you know, what is grammar? So for for Dorothy Sayers, grammar is the fundamental building block of whatever discipline it is that you're learning. That's for Sayers? That's, yeah, that, that's for Sayers. Okay. Now, now, the interesting thing is that I do think that in a lot of classical Christian schools, there's an equivocation of the grammar stage with when it comes to teaching Latin. Hmm. Grammar is not part of the grammar stage in a way, right? Grammar is not part of the fundamental building blocks for how you learn a language. 
For instance, when we learn our first language, nobody is like take, carrying their kid around and saying, look, tree, tree, noun. The tree is big. In this sentence, the tree is the subject. Like that has not happened. No, nobody has, has learned their first language in this. As far as I know, I'm, I can only imagine somebody like sending us an email saying, this is how I learned it. But I don't know if that will be true. I think they'll they'll be trolling. <laughs> so the the if we take the you know Dorothy Sayers's insight and apply it to language learning, we would actually get something very different from the grammar translation method. It, it'd probably be its own thing, but it's like what what is the fundamental what what are the fundamental building blocks of learning a language? It seems like a true Dorothy Sayer-esque method would want to ask that question. What is a fundamental building block? And then, you know, go from there. I mean, that's kind of the, in terms of second language acquisition research, some of the stuff we're trying to bring to bear in language education. Like, we don't need to be scared of new research about what works. But, yeah, part of my feeling about why it's gone so off track is there's this negative spiral that's happened where each step you take, and this is going back hundreds of years, probably starting in the Enlightenment, each step you take away from making Latin and Greek an essential part of the curriculum, where, I mean, in Shakespeare's day, for example, they were, students were speaking in Latin in the hallways, outside while playing, and they'd be beaten very medieval. They'd be beaten if they spoke English. Each step you take away from that and towards more vernacular or just less Latin or whatever, it's just less practice. And then the instruction becomes more formalistic in terms of instruction and grammar. Well, you got another grammar, but we're just not going to use it that much. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy with the grammar translation method where, oh, we're just going to study the formal elements of the language, which means students don't get as good at that language. So then they're like, well, we better do more instruction in the grammar because nobody can actually speak it. And then it becomes nobody can actually write it. And then it becomes nobody can actually read it. And so it's this kind of negative spiral where the more grammar you do, that just inevitably is going to take away from more speaking and more using, more listening. So then people get worse, so they do more grammar. And so we're now at this point where nobody learns anything and they just hate it. Right. And so I want to contrast this with uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis from Surprised by Joy, which is kind of his memoir of sorts. And it's talking about his language education. And you actually open your essay with this quote. Lewis describing his own education with Kirkpatrick, where Lewis had had probably grammatical instruction in Greek already. Um, so he knew some of the formal elements, but he wasn't fluent or anything efficient even. Um, and then the, he describes how the knock would just hand him Homer and a lexicon and say, ready, go, and try to get him as go as fast as he could, not striving for accuracy, um, but just translate. Tell me, tell me what it says. And so he's taking big gulps of the language, getting tons of input in Greek. And then all of a sudden, Lewis says, I was beginning to think in Greek. That is the great Rubicon to cross in learning any language. 
Those in whom the Greek word lives only while they are hunting for it in the lexicon and who then substitute the English word for it are not reading the Greek at all. They are only solving a puzzle. The very formula, naos means a ship, is wrong. Naos and ship both mean a thing. They do not mean one another. Behind naos, as behind nawis or naka, we want to have a picture of a dark, slender mass with sails or oars climbing the ridges with no officious English word intruding. And so this is a picture of what a learning language is, what it can be, what it ought to be, including a dead language, where you are encountering the thing in that language, and then you're not, you're not doing a mental translation exercise. You're just thinking in Greek, like Lewis says. I mean, this is, this is kind of the exciting vision that language teachers should have. Like, this is what I want my students to experience. It's like, sit down with Homer, and all of a sudden, the student's thinking in Greek. Yeah, the Greek language can live strongly in you, too. <laughs> loudly. You can live loudly. Loudly? Oh, man. <laughs> Butchered that one. <laughs> and so I think this connects, though, to something bigger beyond just language learning. And it connects to Lewis's own philosophical positions. Uh, what he thought, not just about language or even literature, but what he thought about like meaning and the structure of reality. And so certainly one of my favorite philosophical texts, one of my favorite texts generally is Plato's Symposium, where all these Athenians are hanging out, drinking a lot, and giving speeches about love. And towards the end, Socrates gives his speech, but most of his speech is actually him recounting a speech that he heard, supposedly, from this woman, is she a priestess? I can't remember, Diotima, who tells him what love is. And I think it's really germane here, and you quote from it in your essay. And this is kind of famously the ladder of love, where you start from loving one person, gradually climb the ladder to perceiving beauty in itself. And there's something in here, if you think about what Lewis says about, about the ship. So Plato or Socrates or Diotima, whoever, says, this is what it means to go aright or be led by another into the mystery of love. One goes always upwards for the sake of this beauty, starting out from beautiful things and using them like rising stairs from one body to two, and from two to all beautiful bodies, then from beautiful bodies to beautiful customs, and from customs to learning beautiful things, and from these lessons, he arrives in the end at this lesson, which is learning of this very beauty. So in the end, he comes to know just what it is to be beautiful. And so I remember one of my classics classes in college, a professor reading this passage, and then actually right before this, there's this line. And he just starts shouting at us, he says, what is beautiful in its nature? It is not anywhere in another thing as in an animal or in earth or in heaven or in anything else. And then he's like shouting, but itself, by itself, with itself. It is always one in form. And so this is this kind of almost mystical apprehension of what, of true reality, of the idea or the form that is not kind of present in anything you can touch or see around you, but that, you know, you see a cup. I have my teacup right here. And that teacup is participating in the form of the cup that 
you can't touch, but through the ladder of love, you can kind of all of a sudden, Plato says, come to a vision of it, of it, however fleeting. And this is, I think, Lewis's experience. All of a sudden, the English is stripped away. You're just reading Homer. And all of a sudden, you see the ship. And it's, it's Agamemnon's ship. And you just, you just kind of see it. And you're progressing up, up the ladder. There's a similar kind of idea of progression in The Republic, the analogy of the divided line, where you kind of go up from illusion to opinion, to reason, to intelligence. You kind of see an image of a thing, and then you have the actual thing itself. There's kind of a reflection of the cup and then the cup itself. But then you can talk geometrically about cylinders or spheres or something. But then you can you can get up to, to the idea, to the intelligence, to the form. And yeah, there's something in there about how if you're just translating into English, you're just going in between things. You're not making any ascent into reality. It's just like Navis, ship, you know, we can kind of play around with all these translations of words. But if you really want to ascend into the thing in another language, then you, you have to achieve some level of proficiency in that language and think in that language. Yeah, otherwise you're just, you know, looking at English in disguise. Why not just read great stuff in English at that point? Which is a great thing to do, but... Why go to Aristotle? Why go to Plato? Why go to Homer? Why go to any of these people if all you want is yourself mirrored back to you? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is the ancient and medieval and early modern, all this stuff that's in these other languages, in Latin, in Greek, you know, they're not thinking our thoughts. They're thinking their own thoughts. And if you insist on just doing a translation all the time in your head, you're not really imbibing in a deep level what they have to say. And so you're just kind of, you know, uh, sketching yourself with some Roman or Greek hues instead of actually encountering Socrates. Right. And the the word imbibing, just if you'll indulge an anecdote, I was at a bookstore once with, with my wife and there is a book and I, I looked at it and I told my wife, wow, isn't that so interesting? The title is in Latin, <laughs> Imbibe. And then she looked at me and said, no, it's in English, Imbibe. So there you go. <laughs> you've crossed the Rubicon, Jonathan. You've, you've crossed the Rubicon that Lewis talked about. No coming back. I see, I see Latin where it's not there. <laughs> well, you know, our listeners who don't know you will need to be advised that even with a name like Jonathan Roberts, you're Mexican. And so your native language is also Spanish, English and Spanish. So you've also crossed the Rubicon since birth of Spanish because <laughs> I have a similar story about you from when we were in San Francisco at a certain public house and they had on their menu a certain kind of rum. And you're like, wow, yeah, Jamaica or hibiscus flavored rum. That sounds really interesting. Can I have some of this Jamaica rum? And he's like, what are you talking about? And so it, it took a while until we realized, like, the rum's from Jamaica, but it's just spelled the same. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. No, yeah, what happened was that I ordered Jamaica rum, and I got the drink. It was good. I was trying really hard. It's like, <laughs> where's the hibiscus here? Where is it? Did I order the right drink? And then the bartender came over and asked, you know, how's the drink? And I said, it's great. I just can't taste the hibiscus. He said, huh? You know, the Jamaica. <laughs> he's like, oh, it's Jamaica, bro. I was like, oh. 
Jonathan, what does it say that both of these stories are about drinking? Imbibe and Tomaika. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have to ponder. <laughs> I have to ponder that. <laughs> Equivocations. Equivocations and drinking. Oh, and so is the symposium also about drinking. Cross-linguistic equivocations. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the actual name of the podcast, because I think we've kind of established some of what we're about that and why you should learn Latin or Greek, or at least a, a sketch of why, uh, initial sketch. There's nothing magical or mystical about these languages inherently. It's the access that these languages give you to the texts written in these languages that make them special. So quick and dirty way of saying it is that Greek is not what made Plato special. Latin is not what made Thomas special. Plato is what makes Greek special. It's your desire to encounter Plato that should kind of fuel your desire for Greek. Um, so on to the title, New Humanists. Jonathan, are you and I the new humanists? No way. Or, or maybe I should say nulo modo. <laughs> so, no, we're not the new humanists. Maybe this is a plot twist. Maybe we, we hadn't planned it out this way, but it's a plot twist in terms of like, maybe that's what the, maybe that's what the audience expected. It's like, oh, it's these two guys who think that they're, you Hot know, stuff. new humanists. They didn't notice that we cleverly omitted the article. It's not the new humanist. It's just new humanists. Gotta pay attention to grammar, people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. New humanists. So what's what's the big idea here? So it was actually Ryan. It's actually you're a, you're the one that omitted the article, right? You're the one that made that call. So why why isn't it the new humanists? Why is the article missing? I mean. For one, you know, I don't want someone to kind of buttonhole me and test me on my humanistic learning and find that I come up short when compared to Erasmus, which would, if tested on virtually <laughs> any subject, I'm sure I'd fall woefully short of Erasmus. <laughs> but it's also, you know, I think of this famous quote from the late Cardinal George of Chicago, and I'm going to butcher it. It's a great quote. But he says something like, you know, I will die peacefully in my bed. I expect my successor to die in prison. I expect his successor <laughs> to die publicly and be executed. And so that's kind of a like, you know, very exciting quote. And he was later asked to confirm it because I think he said it. He didn't write it down. He said it. And then it kind of got recirculated. And so people were worried it was one of these fake quotes, you know, that go around. And he was later asked, like, was, did you really say this? He said, yes. The only thing that annoys me, though, is people always forget what I said after that, which is usually how these things go, because he kind of sketches out him and then the two people that come after those three people. But then the full quote, there's a fourth person, which is the successor of the successor of the successor. So the guy after the one who gets publicly executed, who he said, and he, as the church has always done, will come pick up the pieces and rebuild civilization. So it's, it's not just this kind of bleak, militant view, but it's, it's actually optimistic and hopeful that uh, there's something for us here to do. We're not just here to kind of fight and, or even you know, die as martyrs, uh, although there's always a place for martyrdom. But there's also this 
bigger humanistic civilizational project. And so part of the reason I didn't, I don't want to claim the title of being a humanist, new or otherwise, or to be the ones, is that we haven't reached, you know, Archbishop of Chicago number four, the one who picks up the pieces of civilization. <laughs> the more I study, the more I read, I mean, this is just kind of proverbial. The more, the more you know, the more you learn you don't know. But the more I study about our past, about languages in particular and education, the more kind of depressed I get about my own education. I mean, I've had some great teachers, but we're living in many ways in this self-imposed dark age where at least, you know, the peasants of early medieval Europe, you know, lived in a dark age because of political and economic external forces that kind of destroyed, destroyed civilization. But like, we don't have that. I mean, we've got sanitation and relatively stable political polities and all that good stuff. And yet we're, we're still incredibly ignorant. I mean, think about Shakespeare, you know, out at recess, if that's, if they had that, speaking in Latin with his friends. Now you wonder, you know, how could a simple man, because Shakespeare came from a relatively humble background, how could he have written all this stuff? It's like, you know, he was standing in line for the bathroom, talking in Latin with his friends, and then would go to ancient Greek class, where they would probably, I don't know this, but they would probably get grammatical instruction in Greek class in Latin. Like they weren't getting ancient Greek grammar explained to them in English, and they weren't probably ready for it in Greek, so they'd get it in Latin. Like, that's how, that's how someone that humble wrote stuff like that. And so we're so far off from that, that, you know, I don't personally have any hope of being a Rasmian level new humanist. I want to do as well as I can by my daughter, but I, like I, as her teacher, am already operating on such a pathetic level of education that I don't really have hope for her doing that. But my hope is maybe she can be the one who does that for her child, or perhaps, you know, her grandchild can be, can reach this level of, of real intellectual philosophic renewal. Because it's not going to be me. I'm just, you know, trying to keep the flame from being totally extinguished. Right. It's, the building of a foundation is like, yeah, we're not, we're not the new humanists, but we want to make sure that it's an option for there to be new humanists in the future. Some, someday in the future. That's what we want. <laughs> we want that to be an option. And that really just can't happen without the languages. Yes. You know, if, if the study of ancient languages were to be entirely neglected, that would be such a civilizational loss. And so we don't, we're not interested in that and going that route. We want to, and this is part of our project with the Ancient Language Institute, we want to teach languages to regular human beings. Regular people can learn Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. We want to make sure that that happens. And we want to make sure that people can attain a level of proficiency in these languages where they can access the sources that they're interested at a high level of competency. And this, this is a sort of education that is required to, you know, to be a humanist. But, you know, we're, we're old, right? <laughs> we're old. 
Like if, if you think about the education that the humanists received, like they, they knew a lot of these languages fairly, fairly young, and they were being educated, as Ryan said, in Latin. And so by the time that they finished their you know, degree programs, they had taken courses, many courses, not about Latin. Latin isn't the culmination of a humanistic education. It's kind of like the the ticket that allows you to, to get in. It's kind of like at the roller coaster. Like, are you this tall? To to <laughs> you need to be this tall to play the game. That is that is Latin. Right. So that's that's the uh, that's the that's the idea. So, I mean, we keep we keep using this word, the humanists, humanism. You know, if you grew up in a certain milieu. Uh, you hear humanists and you're like, these are the atheists. So are we are we new atheists, Jonathan? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I think we're like I think we're likelier to be a humanist than we are to be atheists. <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you look at a lot of books, a lot of literature that's prevalent in these uh, circles that Ryan was mentioning, the bad guys, right, are the humanists. Like, that's the where the really, really bad stuff happens. Especially especially the secular humanists. I mean, they usually right. get that adjective. Yeah, secular humanists. Yes, those are the really, that's where the really bad stuff comes from. And... That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about secular humanists. We're not really talking about the same thing that these, you know, the, these authors or these groups of people are concerned about. We are, in some ways, talking about a historical movement that was interested in recovering the study of ancient civilizations as a historical project. So one of the big Differences, I would say, between the medieval kind of study of the ancient world and the Renaissance, you know, the, the, the humanistic study of the ancient world, is that it's more historically oriented and has a broader focus. I, have, I also have, kind of have Dorothy Sayers in the, in the background of my mind here. <clears throat> on why I think the project of the humanists is an improvement on the project of the medievals. And it's this historical, philological focus. You know, they weren't simply interested in, like, the ideas of ancient authors in the abstract. Mm -hmm. They wanted to go ad fontes. They wanted to see what word was actually used. And what word did that mean in that context? I want to know exactly what Plato said. Right. I want to know exactly what the authors of the New Testament said. I don't want to master all the commentaries, even though they probably did. But I don't want to master all the commentaries. I want to look at the text itself as it was written. And that, in many instances, has been what's renewed culture and renewed learning. And that's the, uh, in a nutshell, that's kind of the humanistic project. Look at the works of the ancients as they themselves wrote it in their own languages learn from them so that you can you can be a fully equipped human being right in a, in a rich ethical sense yeah and so that's what we want to be doing on this podcast going forward every week sitting down 
talking about that classical heritage, but also that medieval heritage, that early modern heritage. I mean, these people, they weren't chauvinists of just the Greeks or just the Romans or just the medievals. And we don't want to be either. But kind of looking at this great treasure house of art, of philosophy, of wisdom, of history, and then connecting it to living in the 21st century, living in this world as it is right now and bringing it to bear on the present. So we don't want to do college lectures and just exposit a text, but we want to kind of make connections and basically get educated as we do it. Uh, We're not the new humanists. We're not the ones who have all the answers, but this really is a quest that we're going on to try and figure all this stuff out as much as we can. And we really, really are looking forward to sharing that with you and not just sharing podcast content, but sharing the content of that quest with you guys. So thank you for joining us on New Humanists, a weekly podcast all about rediscovering the humanistic tradition and making sense of it in the modern world. 